Hello, friends. Let me take a moment to thank BetterHelp for sponsoring our podcast. Let me talk to you a little bit about searching for happiness or trying to achieve goals. And oftentimes, life and circumstances and other reasons get in the way. So BetterHelp will assess your needs and match you with your own licensed professional therapist. You can start communicating with your therapist within 48 hours. And it's not a crisis hotline, okay? And it's not self-help. It's actual professional counseling, but it's done securely online. You have access to BetterHelp's network of over 20,000 counselors with a wide variety of expertise and training. And this is also about accessibility, If you don't have a counselor in your area to see in person, then this could be a great solution for you. So this service is available for clients worldwide, and you can log into your account at any time and send a message to your counselor. So again, accessibility. You'll get timely and thoughtful responses, plus you can schedule weekly video or phone sessions, so you won't ever have to sit in an uncomfortable waiting room as in traditional therapy. BetterHelp is committed to facilitating great therapeutic matches, and they make it easy and free if you want to change counselors if necessary. It's more affordable than traditional offline counseling, and financial aid is available. BetterHelp wants you to start living a happier life today. So visit BetterHelp.com. That's Better H-E-L-P dot com slash psych explained and join the over 1 million people who are taking charge of their mental health with the help of experienced mental health professionals. And there's a special offer for my Psychology Concepts Explained listeners. You can get 10% off your first month at betterhelp.com slash psych explained. You can see the link in the show notes. Thanks again to BetterHelp for sponsoring this episode of Psychology Concepts Explained. Hello, everyone. This is Dr. Jack Chuang. Welcome back to another psychology podcast. And today we will be covering the what's usually the last chapter in an introduction to psychology course. And in our class, the chapter title is called Therapy and Treatment. And the chapter before this was covering psychological disorders. And we are using the book entitled Psychology, Second Edition, from openstacks.org. That's with an X. It's a free online textbook, so I'm not being paid at all to recommend it. It just happens to be the textbook I'm using right now. And I like that it's free uh, and is designed to be a freely available resource and to be used in the classroom um, because education is expensive as it is. So having these options um, is really great. Traditional textbooks from the big publishers, even used, can be at least 50 to 60 to $70, right? And brand new textbooks are over $100. And I think that unless someone is a psychology major, there's no reason to have to invest so heavily in these kinds of textbooks. And so even though it may not be the splashiest uh, title out there, 
I think for anyone who's not currently taking a psychology course, I recommend this book. It's free. It's online. You can download the PDF. Um, it's great to read on an iPad, for example, on a tablet. In any case, let's get started here. Now, you may remember that I told you that I'm a counseling psychologist by training, and I have to be careful using that title because I do not currently have a license to practice clinically. So in some states, just using the title psychologist implies that you are licensed and that you're a clinician. So as a psychology professor, I tend to use the title of psychology educator or instructor, even though I do have a doctorate in counseling psychology. So I will try to give you some insights of what I've learned during my three years of clinical training. The first year was at a university counseling center. And yes, for all you college and university students, you have free psychotherapy available to you. So you should take advantage of that even if you're not going through any tough times at the moment. I think it's very helpful. Uh, during my graduate school training, we were all encouraged to seek out counseling. And I believe we were, as part of a group therapy course, we as a class, and the classes are very small, since it's a graduate school, which is wonderful. You don't have to deal with 30 classmates. You, you have a class of maybe 10 people. And we actually went to group therapy together, right, just to learn from the therapist at the counseling center how group therapy works and what the how it why it's helpful, for example. And uh, at some point during graduate school, I went to see a private therapist on my own, not because, and even if I did, I would tell you, but not necessarily because something wrong was happening, but because I wanted to experience what it was like firsthand being a client, being a patient, for example. Um, usually if you're an outpatient, you're just seeing someone for therapy at a private one-on-one -on -one kind of uh, arrangement, then we wouldn't use the title of patient. Patients usually reserved for someone who's hospitalized. So uh, I would use the term client in that case. So the reason that the chapter title is not, in, not called psychotherapy is because there are more therapies than just talk therapy, right? There are treatments that are what we consider biomedical, right? Such as medications and other kinds of psychiatric treatments. So it's good to review the different professionals real quick. Um, we have the psychologist, counseling psychologist, at, both at the master's and doctoral level, then you have psychiatrists who are trained as medical doctors. So they go through the same training as any medical doctor during medical school. Uh, even though they're focused on the brain, they have to take anatomy and physiology and probably had a cadaver to work on during the first couple years of med school, right? And so some of these medical treatments that you know of, such as ECT, electroconvulsive therapy, which is basically using electric shock to the brain, to um, typically for depression or other kinds of psychotic disorders like schizophrenia. Those have to be conducted by a psychiatrist, right? Medications are usually dispensed and prescribed through a psychiatrist. MDs usually have what's called the prescription privilege. Psychologists typically do not, but some states in the U.S. may have different regulations that some clinical psychologists and counseling psychologists may have prescription privileges. 
I believe in the military, and I could be wrong, I need to double check this, that uh, psychologists may have prescription privileges. So it may just depend on the environment, whether a psychologist who has training like I do has the ability and the legal authority to write prescriptions for medications. But in general, you would get that from a psychiatrist. Oftentimes, and this is slightly troubling for me, um, is that oftentimes your uh, family doctor may write prescriptions for uh, what we call psychotropic medications, such as antidepressants and anti-anxiety. Now, I think many of these medications are very safe, and but the thing is, is that some of these medications, like antidepressants, must be used long-term for them to be effective. And I think if your family doctor is recommending, um, based on what you tell them that they're recommending the writing a prescription for you. The only reason I would hesitate taking that advice is that family doctors tend not to do as in-depth of a screening when it comes to mental health, right? That's not their expertise. They hear sleeping problems and they think about sleeping pills. Um, they, th they hear you're feeling down. They think antidepressants. They feel you're feeling anxious. They think uh, tranquilizers or anti-anxiety medications, right? That's just sort of a, the way a diagnosis and treatment works in the medical profession. So I feel like the more responsible thing that a primary care doctor should do is that if they feel like you have psychiatric, no matter if you seem to be doing well and you may benefit from a low-dose medication, I think it's always best to be evaluated by a psychiatrist. Um, and typically a primary care doctor would have a psychiatrist person that they know uh, within their network that they can refer you to, to be evaluated. It doesn't mean you have a severe mental illness, right? It just means that they are going to be more thorough and are more qualified, because that's their specialty, to monitor and evaluate what kind of medications or treatments that you may uh, have. And oftentimes a primary care doctor because of their training, they may not recommend right offhand for you to seek talk therapy from a counselor or a therapist. And they, they'll go quick, they'll, they'll be more quickly to prescribe a medication because that's just what they do. That's their training. Okay. So you have to advocate for yourself. And I would highly recommend talk therapy um, because oftentimes a medication, though it may be helpful. I'm not saying I prefer one over the other, but oftentimes if the root cause has to do with something psychological or family history or relationships, then being able to discuss those things, find coping me mechanisms, make changes in one's behavior, can work well in conjunction with medication, but it might be a good substitute for medications, right? Medications don't resolve problems. They help you to feel better okay all right so some of the early information in this kind of chapter oftentimes talks about the history of psychiatric treatment which is started off a couple you know a few hundred years ago as being quite barbaric just because of the level of understanding of what these mental illnesses are we've come a long way but let's look at some statistics um, typically what you'll find is that uh, only maybe a half or less than half 
of the people who need treatment get treatment depending on the age group okay so each textbook will probably show you different graphics in terms of who's most likely to get treatment and so forth okay um, so if you think about um, hospitalizations in the 19th century right um, these psychiatric hospitals were called uh, asylums or sometimes called insane asylums right just to make it even worse and they're usually just places to lock people up people who have conditions where they cannot function in society or that could be harmful to themselves or other people and they're basically uh, locked away right because at that time there weren't any effective medications to use um, so despite the what you may hear from critics about psychotropic medications today without them a lot of people would be worse off um, for sure especially with these severe disorders um, in the past they used techniques like lobotomies um, electric shock treatment without really knowing right scientifically without having much empirical evidence that these are effective for certain disorders sometimes they're, they're just thought of as cure-alls let's just put someone in a cold bath submerge them in cold water let's just apply electric shock because they in a way back then it was to control psychotic behaviors right to calm patients down so whatever method they use that that seemingly did that they would continue to use then in the early 19 and mid 1900s especially uh, in this textbook it talks about 1954 where antipsychotic medications were introduced now antipsychotic psychotics uh, psychotic symptoms refer to schizophrenia symptoms which are hallucinations and delusions right so that was in our previous podcast so antipsychotic medications when they came about it reduced the patients hallucinations hearing voices their delusions such as the you know feeling paranoid right and it was at that time considered revolutionary because it did not involve these other form severe forms of treatment that were more harmful that that their behaviors and symptoms would be alleviated right and back then psychosis was a very common diagnosis right where people were having hallucinations and delusions which mean which meant at the time that they're losing contact with reality right now the unfortunate thing that happened later on 20 years later is that in the 1970s um, there was a process of deinstitutionalizing these mental health facilities right and what happened was the plan was to replace these large asylums which were considered you know um, unpleasant to be replaced by better kinds of uh, mental health centers but what happened was was that when these older asylums were closed they weren't really replaced with anything effective right new centers were underfunded right the training just wasn't there and it led to a lot of these patients who cannot cope on their own right they don't always have families to go back to and, th and that's where you see a lot of homelessness uh, mental mentally ill people who are homeless and if you live in a large urban area right 
chances are you've probably run across people that are obviously living on the street and and I encounter this quite a bit as well and people you'll see people talking to themselves right and most often the reason for that is that they're experiencing psychotic symptoms they probably have a voice inside their head and they're having a conversation with that voice in their head they're talking back to the voice and it's not controllable right and it's very very intrusive and most people who are homeless and who have mental illness they're not any more violent than anyone else right that is just a negative stigma and stereotype we place on people because they're different from us and it seems frightening and so when we fear people who are different we assume that they're also more violent and then the movie industry wasn't very helpful right there's always an uh, an association between violence and mental illness so now we have that that image and that association in our minds right uh, so when we see something unusual we usually act in fear I remember even before I was a psychology major at, at the University of Texas I would go out with friends and you know take the bus to the mall whatever it is before I had a car uh, during my college years and while waiting for the bus I remember sitting with one of my classmates and then um, there was a person who was talking to themselves and they were approaching us, right? And my friend reacted with fear. But at that time, I reacted more with curiosity, right? And I engaged in conversation with this person. And I thought, well, that was, you know, why would I do that? And I didn't realize that at the time, but I just had this sort of natural curiosity about mental illness and wellness and a lot of empathy for people who are experiencing that rather than to respond with fear just because I didn't understand all right so mental health treatment today is a lot better our medications are a lot more sophisticated but unfortunately um, there are at least a couple of major problems that we have a large percentage of the mentally ill in our homeless population right it kind of makes sense that if a person cannot take care of themselves Right, due to their symptoms, then they're not going to be able to hold down employment and they're not going to be able to, uh, and they're going to end up in the street or in shelters, right? So according to 2011 HUD uh, statistics, that out of the homeless individuals in U.S. shelters, about 25% have a severe mental illness, right? And when someone has a severe mental illness, the safest place for them to be is really an inpatient hospital to actually live within that kind of environment but we just don't have the capacity for that in our country uh, oftentimes mental health treatment is seen as less of a priority than medical treatment right it just doesn't get the same amount of uh, parity or uh, focus by uh, lawmakers right so that's why it's good when you see the occasional congressperson or senator who may have a background in mental health or as a psychologist, right? So at best, we have the American Psychological and American Psychiatric Association and these kinds of groups advocating for psychological treatments amongst the, in Congress, for example, right? And it's unfortunate that our correctional institutions um, are becoming mental health institutions, right? So instead of someone who committed a crime where they should be in a hospital setting, they're in a prison system, right? And when I was a, an intern in Los Angeles, we took a tour 
of the county jail in L.A., and that was the same county jail that apparently O.J. Simpson was held, and that was something they talked about, like like they were proud of that or something. But they talked about that when we took the tour. And we were interns at the time at the VA hospital, and we met with the staff psychologists and other interns who worked in the prison system. And I kind of knew at the time there were these positions available, but, uh, you know, I, it felt like, well, that that would be a scary place to be an intern, but it really was not for them. They really spoke highly of their experience, and it must be very satisfying to be able to help people even though they're incarcerated. Um, so if you're a psychology graduate student looking for different intern possibilities, uh, don't overlook the correctional institutions but of course, do your interviews first. Make sure that it is a safe place to work and that talk to the interns. Uh, mainly you want to go have training where they really focus on the teaching and training aspect of it. I may have spoken about this before, but some internships and practicums, they really just are so short of staff. They want you to go in there and do some testing and do other kinds of work. And they're not really properly supervising or training the trainees, which is the purpose of being there, right? All right, so those old asylums have been replaced with these psychiatric hospitals, local community hospitals. But because of the lack of funding and lack of resources, the emphasis is on short-term stays. And luckily, because of effective medications, that's possible. My internship in Los Angeles was at the Veterans Affairs Outpatient Clinic. So it was only open from 9 to 5, which is kind of good being an intern. That means that you're not going to be called to go in at like 2 in the morning for anything. Right, So the patients, what they do is they have a day treatment center, sort of like an adult daycare. Family members drop off the patient in the morning. And then there's a, you know, Monday through Friday, there's a schedule of activities. They may take turns cooking. Uh, they may have field trips, right? They, they attend group therapies. They have a game room, right? And so it's a very pleasant environment for them, very healthy for them. Um, and they make friends with other fellow patients who are there every day. And so they're able to manage because of their medications. Without them, they would really need to be hospitalized as inpatients. So they're, I wouldn't say highly functioning, but they're functioning enough so that they can, with the help of family members, you know, um, work with them on the weekends, that kind of thing, have their own private lives, and Monday morning, Sort of like going to work. You know, they get dropped off and at 5 p.m. they get picked up. It was 4 p.m. at the time, I think. All right. Um, now, in terms of hospitalizations, people typically these days are hospitalized if they're a threat to themselves or other people, right? That's one of the major criteria for hospitalization. Um, usually when people seek voluntary treatment, it's because they're looking for therapy because they want some relief from depression or anxiety or some other kinds of symptoms, and that's usually outpatient, sometimes inpatient. Um, we had a friend back in the day in Texas who really had trouble with depression, and, and she um, voluntarily committed herself and went through a treatment program for two weeks that was inpatient, so they provide lodging, and that was extremely helpful for our friend. Um, involuntary treatment usually is from a family member or a friend, well, usually family member, and that person's so out of control with their symptoms and they might cause harm to others or themselves um, or someone could be suicidal that they could be 
voluntarily uh, committed, right? And these rules vary from state to state, okay, in terms of community by community, in terms of how the, the uh, someone, whether or not someone can be committed, right? Um, so people would usually get psychological treatment from community mental health centers, right? Private practice practitioners, and in K through 12 schools, you should know that there are school counselors or school psychologists for every school district, right? So that's where a child can get mental health counseling. Uh, schools often have social workers as well. And don't confuse the title of social work. And I learned this through my wife because she has a master's degree in social work. A lot of people think, oh, social workers are people who just come to your house and take the children away, you know, that kind of thing. But it's really not just that, okay? The, a lot of people confuse social work with casework, right? Caseworkers. Um, caseworkers usually have a bachelor's degree and they're supervised by social workers who have a master's degree, okay? And many clinical social workers are trained in psychotherapy. Um, for K through 12 and for many people, group therapy is very effective, right? Especially in addictions and those kinds of treatments. And, um, so the treatment providers, you, you would look for people who have the title of clinical or counseling psychologists, remember, psychiatrists or MDs, clinical social workers, because the social workers also have different categories, just like psychologists, and then you have um, those who are called counselors or therapists. They have a master's degree in counseling psychology, and then you have people who would get a master's degree in marriage and family therapy. That's a very specific uh, major, right? And then when they get a license, then their title would be L-M-F-T. They're licensed marriage and family therapy therapist, right? Um, in some states, you'll see LPC, licensed professional counselor, right? And that's someone with a master's degree, right? A master's of arts or a master's of science, okay? Psychologists use that title. They usually have a doctorate. You know, there are two types of doctorate degrees. There's a PsyD and a PhD, right? PhDs in general, no matter what the field they're in, right? That's usually um, associated with a research degree, right? So that means that even if someone's a clinical psychologist working in a hospital, to get through school, they had to do a lot of research, right? So they're specialists in research. And again, psychiatrists are medical doctors. And there's also psychiatric nurses, all right? So that's not included in many textbooks, but if you're pursuing nursing and you enjoy psychology and you want to work with psychiatric patients, then you should specialize in psychiatric nursing. Okay, this section we're going to talk about talk therapy. So let me take a sip of tea here. <clears throat> I might upgrade my microphone. But I, I, I'm thinking about upgrading my voice <laughs> also. Sometimes I talk and I'm like out of breath. Maybe I need someone who's an opera singer to train me on how to use my diaphragm when I speak. Okay, so the types of talk therapy, we'll go through these in order. Uh, we'll talk about Freud's uh, psychoanalysis, which is now in modern times called psychodynamic psychotherapy. We'll look at play therapy which is an extension of psychoanalytic, uh, psychodynamic therapy, right? And then there's behavior therapy, cognitive therapy, cognitive behavioral therapy, and humanistic therapy. So these are different types of therapy. 
And I've been trained during my three years of training in just about all of these. Um, there's also music therapy that's, that's often um, offered in hospital settings, art art therapy as well, and and again play therapy is usually for um, younger um, for children usually. Okay. Okay. So let's move on. Let's talk about talk therapy. So, in a way. This chapter is usually, you know, the last chapter of an intro to psych textbook because it's a nice summary of major theories that have been covered throughout the semester, throughout the course that you're in. And then it's applied in this clinical setting, right? So psychoanalytic theory, you probably remember from the chapter on personality, now the form of therapy is called psychoanalysis. So if we revisit the actual theory, the major component of psychoanalytic theory was that we all have an unconscious mind and then and whatever these childhood experiences we have, positive or negative, we often buried in that unconscious area of our mind. And when we're a healthy adult or have unhealthy tendencies, it's usually whatever's buried down there that's influencing us, right? Uh, causing us some conflict. So to resolve those conflicts, you would need to use psychoanalysis according to Freudian theory. And the way it works is that you lay down on a horizontal couch, you're staring at the ceiling, the psychoanalyst is sitting behind you in a chair. Right? Kind of creepy sounding, but you know, that, that's how it's set up. And they usually have a notepad jotting down some notes. And one of the techniques is called free association. So you would lay there staring at a blank ceiling. And there's a reason for that, that you're not staring at your therapist doing this, because if you're staring at your therapist and you're asked to free associate, which means that you're going to relax and say whatever comes to your mind, whatever's floating to the top, you just say it out loud. You know, it could be a phrase, it could be a sentence, it could be an image, anything, right? Um, and that is an attempt to bring up, while you're relaxed, hopefully your guard, your ego will be softened a little bit, and then these unconscious thoughts positive or negative would float up to the surface. So the reason that you're not looking at your therapist is because oftentimes our therapist, depending on their age, their sex, and how they look, they might remind us of someone in our lives, and it would interfere with that process. We would often project out, right, um, feelings that we may have about a person in our lives that's reminded to us by this therapist, whoever this is. So it could be a young female, older male, you know, it doesn't matter, right? So that's the reason why you're staring into a blank space. Um, oftentimes psychoanalysts would do dream analysis, so you're asked to keep a dream journal because important clues to your life might present themselves in dreams. And then there's transference, and this is what I was talking about earlier, Transference is a type of projection in a way where the patient or the client's positive or negative emotions, right, um, is directed at the psychoanalyst, right? Again, because they may resemble. So someone who has father issues and you're seeing someone who is your father's age as a psychoanalyst, then... Um, unknowingly, to unknown, unbeknownst to you, you would start to 
throw anger at this therapist, at this psychoanalyst, right? Even though they didn't really trigger anything. But what's triggering you is their appearance and who they represent. So that anger would be an example of transference. That you're transferring these unconscious feelings about this person in your life onto the psychoanalyst because they resemble that person. Now, as a therapist in training, the therapist themselves can also experience this because they their own issues with someone in their lives can be represented by the client or the patient, right? So if someone has marital problems, let's say if I had marital problems and I'm working as a psychoanalyst and I have a female patient who's around my age, right? Then it's possible I would have a challenging time working with that person, right? I might be irritable. I may not be as compassionate. Then if I don't realize that, Right, then I'm experiencing what's called counter-transference. So it kind of goes both ways, right? And oftentimes, if a therapist is um, smart enough with their training, they know they can actually observe the transference coming from the patient and use it in the healing process, right? To make note of it, to mention it to the client, right? Um, and to help the client heal. Or it can turn into something where it interferes with therapy to the point where you need to uh, recommend or refer this patient to another therapist, right? Uh, sometimes therapists find that they cannot work with certain patients because they trigger them, right? That would be the counter-transference, okay? So that's the ethical thing to do professionally. And in general, if you're seeking counseling and for some reason... You don't feel, because trust is everything. If you don't feel that you can trust and feel safe with the therapist or counselor that you are seeing, even after one session, it is okay to find someone else until you do feel a sense of trust and safety. Right? That's very, very important. And you, you may not even know what it's based on. It could be based on ethnic background, it could be based on age, it could be based on sex. You don't really know until you're in there talking to this person. So, psychoanalysis today is not quite as popular today compared to decades ago, but um, the modern version, psychodynamic psychotherapy, right, um, is still widely used, and I was trained in this during my training period, and the focus is, and it, and it sounds like, well, how does that work? Well, during this talk therapy session where the person is talking about their daily lives and their relationships. As a therapist, you focus on past trauma, past uh, relationships, childhood issues, right? And try to link and see if these experiences in the past are affecting their present, right? Because those are the things that are dug down in their unconscious, okay? So if you're watching the video version of this, the, in, the, in most textbook, you'll see from the museum, from... Uh, Freud's uh, office that there's a couch there with a fancy like rug on it and that's where and then there's a chair behind it that's where Freud would sit and take notes right um, and so it says here in the notes for this particular PowerPoint slide right that patients were instructed to lie comfort comfortably on the couch face away from Freud in order to feel less inhibited 
and to help them focus. Okay, um, but if you're intimidated by that and you feel like that's kind of awkward, don't worry. Most forms of therapy today do not utilize this kind of method. You're just going to sit in the regular chair and have a conversation at a nice safe distance from your therapist, right? Um, so uh, every therapist office is designed, well, they attempt to design it to be as welcoming and, and safe as possible, okay? All right. Now, play therapy, and this is what we discussed earlier, it's an extension of psychoanalytic therapy because the idea is that for children, they're not going to be able to verbalize everything, right? And so they will act out whatever emotions they have through play, right? Whether it's through role play. Um, oftentimes they'll play freely. That's called non-directive play therapy, right? Where they have different objects and toys and, and the therapist observes what they're, what they're playing with. Or there's directive play where they're given more structure and guidance, right, uh, from the therapist. And oftentimes there's a lot of different types of toys. So there's a sandbox and figurines so that these figures could represent people in their lives. So it's not quite as obvious to the child why. But if there are family issues and issues with their parents, then typically there are little dolls and figurines that represent family figures. And it's natural for children to sort of role play that out. Right. And so the main job here is that the therapist is observing how a child interacts with these toys to understand the roots of their behavior and what's causing their dysfunction. Okay. And this kind of observation might be helpful in making a diagnosis amongst other kinds of information they get. All right. Behavior therapy, if you remember, there were two major theories in behaviorism. We talked about classical conditioning, uh, which was developed by Pavlov and John Watson. And then there's operant conditioning, um, popularized by B.F. Skinner. Right. So let's focus on classical conditioning. Now, we talked a little bit about last time that phobias can be acquired through this kind of classical conditioning model, this association with something painful or unpleasant, right? So behavior therapy is often used to treat phobias to help someone to decondition, to unlearn their fear, right? Or unlearn their undesirable behavior, okay? Um, sometimes this kind of conditioning called aversive conditioning, which is to pair this undesirable, undesirable behavior with something unpleasant. And that's often used to eliminate addictive behaviors. But oftentimes it could backfire, such as um, having someone smoke in an enclosed place to the point where they feel nauseous and vomit, right? So I hope you weren't eating at the time. Sorry about that. So, you know... On the one hand, that could work, is that the minute they see a cigarette, they feel kind of sick to the stomach. And, and you know, that that's the process of why we avoid certain foods, right? My daughter doesn't like mushrooms and tofu and certain other things that, you know, that's part of Asian food, right? Tofu and mushrooms, but she avoids them like the plague. And so we know that at some point she must have had a negative experience with those foods because at some point she was, she was eating those things. So it's the same principle, right? 
but instead of it happening accidentally, it's planned to associate this unpleasant nausea with this behavior of smoking or combined with um, taking a substance that causes nausea or vomiting when combined with alcohol, for example. Um, and that could be used to treat alcoholism. So I'm not sure how common aversive conditioning still is still used just because there are negative side effects of that. Okay. Um, now, on the other hand, in terms of anxiety or phobias, exposure therapy is used, and that and it is what it sounds like is to gradually expose someone to the source of their fear. So whatever that is, could be spiders, could be dogs, you know, whatever it is, water, uh, heights, but you expose them in a certain way so it's gradual. So instead of seeing the stimulus or feeling the stimulus and having extreme fear and panic, you gradually expose them and pair it with a more positive experience. So the example that's used in this uh, book, and this is from an early study by Mary Cover Jones back in the 1920s was that they had a patient named Peter who was afraid of rabbits. Okay, It's funny that it's Peter who's afraid of rabbits anyway. So the rabbit is a conditioned stimulus, right? right? No one is born being afraid of rabbits, so it had to be learned at some point. Maybe they were attacked by rabbits, I don't know, at some point. Now the unconditioned stimulus, now instead of thinking of drooling, they used um, cookies, a snack that's very pleasant, causes relaxation. So what they would gradually do is to pair, right? So instead of the little Albert example of pairing the white rat with a loud, unpleasant noise to induce fear of the white rat in little Albert, and you remember that case, that study by John Watson that got him, uh, uh, in, caused him to be infamous. Anyway, in this case, the pairing had to do with a pleasant unconditioned stimulus, having some milk and cookies, and then expose Peter to the rabbit, right? So over time, while they're in this relaxed state and the rabbit appears, right? They're having cookies. Well, it could backfire. It could be that they're, they, he could become frightened of milk and cookies. Right? That's possible. But what happened that over time, that suddenly the response of fear to the rabbit decreased over time, okay? So after two months, it says here in the book, Peter was able to pet the rabbit while eating a snack, okay? So that's an example of exposure therapy using classical conditioning. Now, another type of exposure therapy, which is something you may have heard of, and this is developed by Joseph Wolpe, W-O-L-P-E, used the same technique of exposure but called a systematic desensitization. Okay, systematic desensitization, right? You may have heard that word used a lot to be desensitized, like when we watch violent movies over and over, we're kind of desensitized, right? It's a reduced sensitivity. So the goal is to reduce one's sensitivity to something that causes someone to have a panic or a phobia, right? The anxiety-inducing stimulus, right? So what happens is, is that with regards to the name systematic is that a person is gradually paired with relaxation techniques, say the example in the book is arachnophobia, right? Someone's fear of spiders. They would probably start with a photo of a spider that you would look at while you're doing relaxation exercises. And once you're able to not feel anxious seeing a photo, 
then you're exposed to something else that may be a little stuffed toy or plastic toy of a spider, right? So it's very, very gradual, very progressive. Until someone is able to be in the presence of that stimulus and not have this out-of-control anxiety anymore, okay? And nowadays, because of technology, VR, virtual reality headsets are being used in the office to because I think it's easier to create situations. You can create situations where someone is going up an elevator, for example, using virtual reality so you don't have to physically walk your client out and walk upstairs to treat them. Um, and so this has been um, really a breakthrough in using a traditional theory combined with modern technology to help someone overcome phobias or extreme anxiety that where there's a trigger, okay? Now, there's another kind of behavior therapy that's used in operant conditioning. Now, remember, operant conditioning is based on uh, the consequences of behavior. Remember, we call them reinforcements and punishments, okay? And so, in this case, this is often used in a group setting, sometimes in a school setting, or some sort of... Uh, type of inpatient where they have children with severe disorders and they would use simple things like stickers something you would find in a classroom in in elementary school praise using candy as as tangible rewards uh, maybe they have a point system oftentimes in psychiatric hospitals uh, patients have a, what's called a token economy right so they literally earn tokens like poker chips or points and they exchange them for privileges, right, and rewards. So prison systems, psychiatric hospitals often use these kinds of token economies. And these token economies are based on the idea of operant conditioning and positive reinforcement. I actually tried this before when I was a, had a part-time job in a charter school in Texas, and it turned out to be a horrible place to work, but Beyond that, okay, um, the, the early part of it, I had a classroom that was very difficult to manage, and I wasn't meant to be in the classroom. I was meant to be the school counselor. And so just because of mismanagement, I was thrown into a sixth-grade classroom, and, you know, we had children broken down from gifted and talented and all that. So all the kids knew their label, which was really sad. Uh, talk about self-fulfilling prophecy, right? Supposedly they had these classes broken up, 6.1, 6.2, right, for sixth grade. And the children were not supposed to know what 6.5 meant, what 6.1 meant. But you can tell, the gifted and talented, the GT students, they were walking around with their chest out and real proud of themselves. And then my class, the 6.5 students, I asked them, so what's 6.5? You know, I asked if they knew, and they said, yeah, we're the dumb class, right? Which was very sad. But the point is, is that I tried to use the token economy with my class, a point system. And that kind of worked somewhat, but, you know, I didn't have much experience with it in that environment, and I wasn't really meant to be in the classroom with these adolescents. But there I was. I was thrown in there because of poor uh, human resources management. All right. So let's switch to cognitive therapy. Now, we've talked about cognitive theory before. This has to do with how our mind processes information. It has to do with how we think, right? And so... Cognitive therapy is talking about how do we restructure our way of thinking because it is faulty thinking that leads one into their symptoms, into their distress. For example, like depression, right? The cycle of negative thinking and uh, pessimistic thinking. 
So here are some examples of what cognitive therapists focus on with their clients because they focus on their cognitive distortions, their distorted thinking, right? Think about if you've ever said this to yourself. Um, have you ever overgeneralized, right? Which is to take a small situation and make it huge, such as, oh, I'm bad at everything. Nobody likes me, right? That's an example of overgeneralizing which if you think about it, that's more of an emotional expression. So a cognitive therapist would examine that and they would actually say that you literally mean no one on earth likes you, you know? And so it's to help the person challenge their negative thinking to a more accurate way of thinking. Sometimes we have polarized thinking, black and white thinking. In other words, we see things as absolutes, all or nothing, right? I'm either perfect or I'm a failure. There's no in-between right and the reality is life is hard and there are a lot of ups and downs there's a lot of gray area but when we're feeling down we don't see things like that so to alter one's thinking the hope is that it'll alter their behaviors and their emotions as well right um oftentimes these distortions in thinking are called irrational beliefs right they're not logical. When we're upset and we're not feeling good about ourselves, our thinking is not accurate, right? We're not seeing ourselves accurately, right? Whether it's our self-perception about our appearance, right? If you're feeling down, then we're going to think that we're much more overweight and much more ugly and all that than the reality would indicate, right? Um, we often say that as students, right, that, oh, that I'm not capable, I'm dumb, I can't do this, right, I'm not a math person, right? We use a lot of these negative statements that are irrational. In other words, they're not accurate about ourselves, okay? So here's an example from the textbook. Someone fails a test, and they say to themselves, I'm worthless and stupid, right? Which, these kinds of thoughts can spiral someone into depression, so an example of a change in how we interpret these events, someone fails a test, but instead they say, well, I'm really smart, but I really didn't study for this test, and I'm pretty sure I can do better if I had more time, right? It's not about making excuses. It's just about seeing things a little bit more accurately. Then that person is less likely to experience depression. Okay. Now here's one of the more common forms of therapy today, and it's called CBT, Cognitive Behavioral Therapy. And instead of focusing on one's past, like psychodynamic therapy, right? cognitive behavioral therapies focus more on what's happening now. How do we change your thinking and behavior now? So it's not just changing behavior, it's also changing one's thinking. So it's a combination of both. So CBT, they would focus on your cognitive distortions, like a cognitive therapist would be, okay? Um, but also to help change one's self-defeating behaviors okay so that that's kind of a, a nutshell right so the cognitive therapy aspect of it is to help bring awareness to the client of their thinking patterns right but also replace them with other ways of thinking that are more positive in terms of the coping strategies right 
And behavior therapies basically is to uh, create a system to uh, reward good behaviors and minimize the negative behaviors, right? So there's an ABC model that's used in CBT where there is an action, right? Like say failing a test, then there's the belief, right? That's how what we use to explain the event. And then C stands for consequences. What's the consequence of that particular belief, right? So something happens, we overgeneralize, right? We jump to conclusions, and then we feel bad about ourselves. Right? So cognitive behavioral therapy can, can uh, be a nice intervention here. Okay, now the last of the talk therapies is humanistic therapy. Now this also goes from, by different titles. And I was also trained in this, and this is called client-centered therapy or Rogerian therapy, named after Carl Rogers, the humanistic psychologist who co-founded the field, right? So this is a very popular form of therapy because it is about helping someone to take control of their own life, right, in general. It is a, a type of non-directive therapy, in other words, the therapist is not the expert. They're not in charge. You do not give direct advice, right? But it is the client who leads in therapy, right? They are the expert of their own lives, not the therapist, right? So what does the therapist do? Are they just paying for nothing, just an empty room? No. What the therapist does is to help the client to become aware, right, to point out things based on what they're talking about, but using what they say as a way to create opportunities for insight. It's like, oh, that's my pattern. That's what I've been doing. I didn't realize that until we talked it out, that this was happening year after year after year, why I always sabotage, you know, the day before an exam and these kinds of things, okay? And so the techniques that are specifically used, and I remember during graduate school learning about these and we actually role-played with classmates one-on-one -on -one, we would literally work on active listening skills right now listening sounds like something that's a no-brainer everybody knows how to listen you just shut up and listen to someone talk but that's not listening right if you ever talk to someone on the phone and they're absolutely quiet in other words you don't even hear anything don't you just after five minutes go, hello, you're still there, right? And that's because to feel like you've been listened to, the listener needs to give you information, needs to give you signs that they're listening, right? That's called active listening. So you can practice this on your own with family members. Even something as simple as body language, eye contact, right, is a sign of active listening. If you're not looking in their direction, then someone would say, look at me, I'm talking to you, right? Even though listening is with one's ears, we have to listen with our body language. Now, if you're a good friend or even if you're a therapist, you know, you don't want to have your arms crossed while someone's talking to you, right? Because that's not an open kind of receptive body language. So body language matters. Oftentimes you'll find therapists leaning in a little bit, right? These are all these micro behaviors that we learn through our training and counseling psychology, um, not because... You know, you know, you you cannot really train empathy, but there are ways to make these micro behaviors second nature 
to where it doesn't come across like you're using a technique, but that you're actually a genuine, empathetic, non-judgmental therapist or friend, right? And I find myself using these techniques a lot, even though I don't even think of them as techniques anymore, but they are, right? So active listening, um, you can summarize what someone says, not repeat back. That's called parroting. You don't want to repeat back everything. That becomes annoying, right? But often, sometimes you can repeat back the last few words of their sentence, right? That tells them, gives them an indication that you were listening, right? You can clarify what they're saying. So what I think you're saying is this, right? So tell me if I'm wrong, but do you mean this? Do you mean is this what you're saying, right? That's a very common type of paraphrasing, summarizing technique. And try it with your friends and family, right? If someone is sort of having a tough day, it doesn't even matter what they're talking about. It could be anything, talking about their day or they're having trouble at work. But if you nod your head, if you, you know, in a subtle way, right, don't just be too obvious about it, that like you're a robot, but you make eye contact, not staring, but eye contact, right? You have an open posture. You know, it's okay to say, mm-hmm. That's sort of the joke amongst counselors is that that's all they do is sit there and go, mm-hmm, right? I remember I had a professor and I was having a meeting with him back in grad school. And I caught him in his automatic mm-hmm mode because he mm-hmm at the wrong time in mid-sentence, right? So that told me that he was probably distracted and not really paying 100% attention to what I was saying because I was talking and then mm-hmm right in the middle of my sentence, right? Instead of like at the end where there's a pause point. So you, so you really cannot be on autopilot. Um, and I think there are some sitcoms that sort of played that out where I remember, I don't remember which show was it, but the guy, the husband character was sitting at the uh, on the couch and his wife calls and he puts the phone down and he keeps eating popcorn, watching TV. And he just keeps saying, yes, dear, mm-hmm, yes, dear, at random, uh, random times, right? So that's an example of, a bad example of active listening. Now, unconditional positive regard is also a technique and is also from uh, humanistic psychology. And this is the idea that, uh, and it's the same meaning as unconditional love, meaning that you support and not judge this person, no matter what they've done, but you give them the same amount of value. You value them no matter what, right? So... One of the fears that any client has, you know, when they go see a therapist, you know, they're a stranger, you're talking to a professional, is that we're, we're afraid of whether this person will judge us as being crazy, as being abnormal, right? All these words that we normally would not use in psychology, but that's how one feels. And so, you know, if someone does something and they're willing to say something that's very intimate and private to a therapist, right, then it's not that you're not shocked by it or anything. It's just that you don't judge them for it. You listen, right? You let the person tell their story. Uh, you use open-ended questions. You don't use yes-no questions. These are all techniques to allow a client to keep talking. And these are also good techniques to use to be a good listener, right, of your friend. Oftentimes what happens is that as friends or as siblings or as a son you know in private life not as you know a therapist in therapy 
When someone's struggling with something, having a rough time, what do we want to do? We want to fix things, don't we? We want to go out there and physically alter the situation to come to the rescue of that person. But you know, in therapy, the goal is not to rescue the person, is not to solve their problems. It is to be a sounding board. The goal is to allow the person to eventually solve their own problems, right? Because if you take the wise man on the mountain role as a therapist and you're like, you listen to your client and you're the expert of things and they ask you, what do you think? What should I do, right? And beginning counselors and therapists often feel trapped by that and they start talking about solutions when they really should be talking about is, well, it's not up to me to make these choices. You know, these cho- you have to make these choices, right? But here's what you've told me about your options, right? Um, a therapist could open up some doors, right? And say, have you ever considered this, right? Did you ever notice this? And... So if the client only thinks there are three options, A, B, and C, and then you talk about D and E, it's not to say that D and E is better, but it's just to open up the eyes to the client that there are other avenues. So the goal of humanistic therapists is to be genuine. Again, you can't fake it. You have to be empathic. You can't fake that. And you have to be accepting. Okay? Um, because the more you can do this, you help, the more you there is trust in this working relationship with your client for them to grow personally, right? They trust that what that whatever they say, they won't judge, right? And that they're there to help you. So I really enjoyed being a therapist using this particular approach. Okay, let's talk about biomedical. So those are all categories that go under talk therapy. Let's talk a bit about biomedical therapies right and so the in general the the larger category label that we'll use is psychotropic medications these are medications used specifically for psychological disorders right now note that in this textbook it talks about how medications do not cure disorders they alleviate symptoms right Just like cold medicine doesn't cure the cold, it alleviates the symptoms brought about by a cold, right? It's not a cure. So it is not to say that this is not a good approach. Again, I take a more of a balanced, objective approach here. I'm not going to be biased and say, because of my training, oh, don't ever take medicines, only do talk therapy, because medicines don't solve the problem. But I'm also not going to say, oh, you just need a pill, that'll solve everything. Um, because it doesn't get, again, it doesn't cause behavior change necessarily, right? Um, so sometimes a balanced approach, a combination therapy of talk and medicine could be helpful. For some people who just need a tiny bit of a small dosage, maybe they're dysthymic, they have low-level depression, and maybe it's biochemically based and they don't really need talk therapy, but just it sort of makes them feel better, Um removes the black cloud over their head, then yeah, maybe a biomedical approach only could be helpful. But this depends on every person's situation, okay? So it's best to get a lot of different opinions from these specialists before you start any kind of treatment. 
And again, I'm not in a position here to give you direct advice on what to do, okay? All right, so antipsychotics are a category of medicines that are used to treat... Um, now here, let's go back to schizophrenia. Positive symptoms, right? Now that's a strange title. But a positive symptom is mathematical. It just means a plus. It means someone is experiencing something in excess. So if you think about what a hallucination is, you're seeing things that aren't supposed to be there. That's an excess. Delusional beliefs. You're having belief systems that shouldn't be there, that are inaccurate. Delusional. That's an excess. These are what are called positive symptoms, right? I know it's a strange label, but negative symptoms, if you remember that, a negative symptom of schizophrenia is where someone is experiencing less than normal of certain activities, like less motivation, less speech, right? That's called the negative symptom of schizophrenia, right? So some drugs are used to treat positive symptoms. Some drugs that are called atypical antipsychotics are used to treat the negative symptoms, right? Um, antidepressants, of course, are there to change serotonin and norepinephrine levels, often used for depression and anxiety, which also, as a side effect, could help someone stabilize their sleep, right? Um, there are specific drugs called tranquilizers that are anti-anxiety medications, right? So many of these anxiety disorders could be helped with anti-anxiety disorders. So anti-anxiety medications depressed the central nervous system activation because our mind is overactive in a sense. It's overstimulated, having too many worried thoughts, ruminating, right? And so it helps to calm the brain down. All right, mood stabilizers, okay, like bi for bipolar disorder, like lithium, okay, um, that's a different category than antidepressants, right? It's meant to shorten these ups and downs, right? Uh, reduce the amplitude of one's mood swings. Stimulants, okay, is often used and proven to be effective for maintaining attention with attention deficit hyperactivity disorder right? Um, then you have another form of treatment that's not so much a medication, but it's electroconvulsive therapy. People are surprised that ECT, as it's called, is still used today because it sounds barbaric, but it has been helpful for some people. And it's, it's to purposefully induce a seizure. It's like resetting the brain, like a jump start, right? To help someone with severe depression. Now, this is not something a psychiatrist would recommend off the bat. Oftentimes, this is sort of a last resort. But more and more patients are um, having a course of this treatment. And it's not just a one-time thing. There's a whole course of treatment that lasts for uh, several months for it to work. And for some people, it may not work. The primary side effect is going to be some memory loss, right? But again, if someone is non-functioning, suicidal, severely depressed, having minor memory loss might be, you know, the benefit outweighs the uh, cost there, right? So that's up to the patient and their psychiatrist, and this can only be done by a psychiatrist, right? And now some newer techniques, such as transcranial magnetic stimulation, using magnetic fields to stimulate the brain, is often being used these days as well as a newer form of treatment. So ECT had a sort of a horrific past, but now, you know, it's used with anesthesia in a much more controlled medical setting with, you know, an anesthetist as well as 
um, you know, the psychiatrist under supervision, right? So to try to minimize side effects. So that is becoming more and more of an available option for some patients. Okay. All right. Now, what to expect when you see tr seek treatment is that you normally go through what's called an intake process, right? That's to assess what your client may need. Okay. So even if you go to a university counseling center, they'll probably have a survey for you to ask, oh, what are you coming in for? What is troubling you, right? And the initial session really is about you talking about what's going on so that the therapist can gather, take notes, to see how they can address your needs, right? So initially, that's called a needs assessment, okay? Um, of course, practically speaking, you have to see whether you have insurance. And again, if you're a university student, you have it all for free at your university counseling center or college counseling center, right? Um, the therapist in the very first session legally has to inform the client about the rules, the laws about confidentiality, right? What the fees may be and give you an idea of what to expect in treatment, right? Uh, in my internship training in Los Angeles, we had a specific, specific form of therapy that was only 10 sessions, right? It was considered a short-term psychodynamic technique, and I was supervised by my licensed psychologist there. And I remember in the first session with my um, with my patient, and this is a patient who's been in and out of therapy for many, many years, and we decided to try this, describe the whole thing, that it's going to be in 10 sessions. And it really worked for this patient because what happens is, is that when you know you have unlimited sessions of therapy, it's kind of like, you know, having no deadlines for your essay in school. How urgent are you going to treat that project if there are no deadlines, right? But each time we meet, I say, okay, this is session number two. Remember, we only have 10 of these. We meet once a week, so we're going to have, you know, oh, we're in session number eight. Then all of a sudden, this the, the patient has so much to talk about. Oh, yeah, I, I was thinking in between that we need to address this issue, that issue. And it's amazing that actually limiting the number of sessions for some patients can actually have a positive effect, okay? Now, confidentiality is very, very important, okay? You need to feel safe when you go see a therapist because um, you don't want to feel like, well, is this going to end up on the internet somewhere, you know, that kind of, is this going to end up in some professor's podcast, you know, that kind of thing. Um, and so the therapist cannot disclose confidential communications to anybody else unless mandated or permitted by law and so there are limitations for example if you say that you're going to harm yourself if you say that you might harm others you're homicidal you're thinking about killing someone right then those things cannot be held confidential there's a duty to report by the therapist to report to the authorities or to uh, use your medical information at an er right to be able to give to a hospital, right? So some of those things you say, or if you've committed certain crimes or plan to commit a crime, those things may not be held in confidence, right? So there are limits to confidentiality. You cannot just uh, say anything and assume that everything's going to be held private, okay? Um, therapy can be one-on-one, -on -one, could be in a group, okay? So there are different types of settings. Um, Individual therapy sessions usually is about an hour or less, right? And uh, and again, it's uh, usually in an office setting, okay? Um, and uh, let's see. In group therapy, the reason group therapy 
uh, works very well is that first of all it might be more um, there's just a sense of relief knowing that someone else might be experiencing something similar right so in the VA the veterans got some comfort knowing that oh I'm not the only one that I'm hearing similar stories from others right so if you think about 12-step meetings which technically are not group therapy because they're community-led right volunteer-led they're not necessarily led by a professional but in the hospital setting we did have group therapy led by myself and a licensed psychologist where um, we talked about substance abuse type issues we had anger management groups uh, sadly a lot of our anger management groups um, some of the veterans the source of their anger was the VA was the government the VA hospital for not getting the benefits they thought they deserved so and a lot of them thought the anger management group was a place for them to vent and get out their anger but in reality it was there to learn how to manage their anger because the lesson was is that when you're out of control and angry you can hurt yourself and hurt others and in essence if you're dealing with a place like a hospital you're not going to get what you need because you're out of control no one's going to listen to someone who's screaming and aggressive so we try to teach our clients and patients assertiveness skills how to get what you need in a calm way without losing control right and to manage way, basically ways of managing anger okay um, group therapy is great for decreasing shame and isolation right that, uh, that's kind of obvious when you're in a group of people who have experienced similar things some of these groups are psychoeducational so anger management is one of them where we don't just talk but as a leader of the group I would bring in pamphlets and information and handouts and techniques for them to try like homework assignments um, that then we talk about the next week about how to control one's anger right um, whether it's the source of the anger how to express you know why we're so angry all the time and all that okay so there's an educational component to it okay all right um, there's also family therapy right remember there are therapists called LMFTs out there where they're specializing work with couples and families as well and some therapists may choose to specialize only with couples or only with couples with specific problems so it just depends on the therapist so it's important that when you're seeking out a professional find out what their specialty area is and you should also ask what is their theoretical orientation right are they client-centered are they psychodynamic right now that you've taken this course you kind of have an idea of what that means okay um, family therapy basically uses a systems approach right and a lot of social work um, training for social workers is studying systems much more so than I in my training as a counseling psychology uh, doctor right so the family is an organized system right so typically in family therapy they don't view let's say if the child is getting trouble in school the, the point is not to focus so much only on the child that the child is the problem for everybody else but that everyone is somehow contributing to the system and the child acting out is one symptom 
of this family system. Okay. Um, all right. Uh, couples therapy. One of the main things we do, and I work with couples before, is to teach communication. Right. Um, to set ground rules of how couples can communicate, right? Because couples that don't have ground rules for arguing would just fly off the deep end, use any language, use any words, right, that are very harmful, and sometimes it's difficult to recover when you use certain words in an argument. Your spouse or partner will, may remember that, and it's very harmful, right? You could hurt the person uh, much more than you intended by just using certain labels. So one of the things we do in couples therapy is to give them strategies and set rules. For example, it could be that, you know, don't talk while you're at the height of anger. If you feel this much anger, you tell each other, okay, let's have a 10-minute timeout and we'll come back and talk about it when we're both not so angry. That could be one rule. So those are some examples of how effective couples therapy can be. But with couples therapy, usually it's, it's about um, helping a couple that might be on the brink of breaking up or divorce, that kind of thing. And one of the first things we talk about in the first session is, and they may not have talked about this amongst each other, is are you fully committed to this process to try to improve the relationship? And in some cases, someone might say no. They really, you know, and if that's really the case, someone really wants out, then there's really very little a therapist can do. If one person wants to fix it and the other person doesn't, right? So both people have to be at least on board. Okay, um, so let's also talk about addiction. And um, when it comes to substance abuse disorder, sadly, in the VA hospital, there were quite a few um, of our patients, veterans, who were not only living on the street, but um, s suffered a lot from substance abuse problems, right? And uh, so the group therapies were helpful so that they can talk about things and get support from others, right? Um, but uh, Addiction is one of those disorders that you don't wish upon anyone. No one really plans on becoming addicted to something. It was used as a coping mechanism at first, or they voluntarily chose to use it at first, maybe for recreation uh, or for numbing pain, for example. Right. So it is very, very challenging um, because the relapse rates are pretty high, about half relapse. Right. And I found that 12-step groups can be very helpful. Uh, having a sponsor, for example, um, just being able to have a community of support. Right? And for others, they actually need help with medical interventions to overcome the withdrawal symptoms. All right. And substance abuse treatment has to be long-term. In 12-step groups, they say that, you know, once an addict, always an addict. And, and there's some truth to that for many people is that it's very difficult. If someone's an alcoholic, they really cannot touch alcohol because it's very easy to uh, relapse, right? Um, behavior therapies have shown to be effective, okay? And medicine is often used to help someone 
overcome their detox. Sometimes it's very dangerous for someone to quit cold turkey, for example, if they're using heroin or you know, some sort of high dosage of anything, even alcohol. Someone can go into shock when their body is uh, going through withdrawal. Okay? So having a safe hospital settings can be, can be helpful. Now you may see on the political level, government level, that there are some changes taking place. You may be seeing news stories about countries and certain communities in the United States going more towards a treatment model of people who are caught with drugs, even the serious drugs like cocaine and heroin, decriminalizing drug use, that is to offer treatment, not to incarcerate, right? Not a punitive model. And I personally believe that's the more effective way to go, right? Um, yes, you criminalize the dealers and the sellers and the you know smugglers, but for the everyday users, I don't really think a prison setting is going to be helpful. Um, they're going to get better mental health treatment if they're in a mental health facility, right? It kind of makes sense, okay? Now, in general, treatment's effective if people put in the time, right? At least three months of some kind of counseling or even medications, right? It does take time. Nothing's going to change overnight. But you know, back in the day, I'm not sure the statistic is still the same, but when I was going through my training, you talked about in general, what's the most common number when it comes to the number of therapy sessions that someone experiences when they go to therapy? You know, so I was thinking, well, maybe five, maybe 10. The most common number was one, right? And, and again, I don't know what the numbers are today, but that was when I was in training. And it kind of made sense because a lot of people, let's say at a university counseling center, someone feels overwhelmed and they spend their first hour just sort of letting things off their chest and they feel some relief from it to the point where the, oh, the, 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 the anxiety is kind of gone. There's no point in going back. And plus when it's free, you don't feel the obligation to cancel the next meeting. So sometimes people make the appointment and just don't show up. And so some university counseling centers are just charging $1 now or some minimal amount so that there's a sense of commitment um, that is not just a free, that they can just go or not go, you know, and not feel committed to, right? Um, treatment can be effective if it's more holistic, meaning you don't just focus on the biomedical, you don't just focus on one aspect, but you focus on the variety of needs that person has, right? Um, like if it's someone who's mentally ill and homeless, right? You can't just give them medication. You can't just give them a shelter. You got to work on all these types of things that are affecting them to help them recover, right? Um, group therapies can be, again, effective, right? For maintaining support over time, like for addictions. Um, and also for teens, right? Parental involvement is, you can't just say, oh, it's up to the therapist, it's up to the teachers, it's their problem, right? They have to fix my child, right? You can't have that approach as a parent. You have to be involved. Okay, we're going to finish up here with the socio-cultural model. And this is an important part in therapy because of our diverse communities, especially in the United States. You need to have a therapist who is culturally competent, right? Now, you might think, well, should, if you're just empathic and you care, you know, what difference does it make, the race or the ethnic background or the sex 
of the uh, therapist. It should not matter. Well, ideally, yes, it should not matter. But there are so many cultural elements that affect our judgments and our approach to helping people that as a therapist, the person needs to be aware of them, of what those issues are. Let me just give you one example. As a trainee at the University Counseling Center, had a um, had a client who was a student uh, who was Asian, I think Korean at the, I shouldn't say Korean at the time that doesn't make sense but um, I was trying to remember the Korean American or Korean I believe they were a foreign student okay and they were really distressed because they want to change their major okay and they're afraid of the consequences of what their parents would think okay now I remember I think this client had seen other therapists before other counselors at the school and and we brought this up in supervision <clears throat> amongst the group of trainees and psychologists and I was the only Asian American person on staff and for the typical Western trained of a Western background psychologist or a counselor, you know, think about what kind of approach they would take with that particular student, right? Chances are they would have the mindset that, well, it's what you want that makes you happy that's important. It's not, you're not going to school for your parents, right? So you, you just do what you need to do. Right, that would be them. Even though they don't, you're not supposed to give direct advice, but that would be their mindset. And then I, I, I talked about it in this session. I said, no, you cannot really just think that that's the only right way to go, because in many families, going to school is a family decision. What you choose to major in is a family decision. They're a more collectivist type of, you know, they're much more involved than your typical say, white American uh, family, where there's much more freedom in your academic choices. Literally, I have friends who are Asian American whose families disowned them, cut off funds, because they, they wanted to pursue a major that they did not approve of. Okay? So it's not about just parents being overbearing or unreasonable or the tiger mom, that kind of thing. It's more about the dynamic that there is there's a level of collectivistic thinking in the family that this is a group decision right um, that that needs to be taken into consideration so at least this person knows the student knows that if they do choose a certain route that it could lead to certain consequences and it's up to her or him as to whether or not they can live with that consequence right so from the Western point of view you think oh it's just up to the individual you got to do what makes you happy. It's not as simple as that. And that's just one example of how culture can play a part, right? And in the Houston area, I was very proud to be a part of, even as a graduate student, I was part of a committee to create the very first Asian American focused counseling center. So the idea was to have a clinic that had bilingual therapists of the most popular languages spoken, uh, like Vietnamese or uh, and other, and Chinese, for example. And the idea here was that um, their needs were not being met by 
the general mental health system. And so we had to first find out, is there a need? What can we do? And, uh, and at the time, it was very successful, you know, um, in terms of being able to provide culturally competent um, and we provided scholarships to help people get a master's degree who want to pursue this field. So to be culturally competent, it doesn't mean that you have to be Asian to work with Asian clients or you have to be Hispanic to work with Hispanic clients. It just means that you have to have these cultural dynamics in mind as part of your therapy treatment arsenal, right? part of your tool belt, I like to think of it. Because if those tools are not there to at least recognize that there are cultural dynamics here at play, right, that you're not going to be effective, you're going to hit a brick wall, and you're not going to be understood, feel like you're understood by the, by the patient or client, okay? And then that can become a treatment barrier, right? So minorities, those who speak a second language other than English in America, they're they may have a tougher time seeking mental health services, right? Because seeking a mental health service is a much more uh, white middle class kind of accepted activity. It's not something that many minority cultures in America see as an option. You know, why would you talk to a stranger about your private life kind of thing? It's supposed to be within the family, you know, those kind of dynamics, right? And so... The mental health community um, really needs to work hard in being able to educate the community to talk about these things and uh, to reduce the negative stigma that mental illness and mental health treatment um, has for that community. Okay? All right. So I covered some of the basics of... Uh, Counseling, uh, therapy, and treatment. You know the two major categories, talk therapy as well as biomedical therapy, right? Who the specialists are that you need to seek out. What the different types of approaches that talk therapists have uh, in terms of uh, treatment. Uh, when to use behavioral therapy. When to use cognitive behavioral therapy, for example. When tr uh, treating certain things like phobias are very effective. In any sense, um, I hope this just gives you a broad overview and this is a very diverse field, just like anything else. And this is my last of the long-form chapter uh, lectures for Introduction to Psychology. So these will be continue to be used within my courses. And so going forward, I will be making more podcasts, probably on more singular topics that tie into psychology and current events, and hopefully just topics that maybe students who are seeking a career in psychology, maybe for other mental health professionals that they might, may find useful, all right? So I'm still making my to-do list of what to do, and um, but thank you for listening, and I hope as students that you've gotten a lot out of these uh, particular podcasts that I've used in my courses. Okay, take care. If you enjoyed this podcast, please follow me on anchor.fm slash jackbteaching, that's Jack, the letter B, 
and the word teaching. And you can reach me on Twitter. My handle is also at Jack B. Teaching. Thank you.